Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number 14. I am sitting here with my good friend, David G. And to start off this podcast today, I am going to... By the way, did I say episode number 14 of Sober Speak, or did I just say episode number 14? But anyway, it is Sober Speak. Uh, and I'm going to ask my good friend David here to... I uh, asked him to bring over something that is uh, uh, special to him in terms of uh, some of the reading from the literature. And I'm going to let him read that right now. To start us out. Hi, everyone. I'm David G. Uh, and I brought this... This is a, a writing from Bill. I believe it's from a letter that he wrote not long before he passed away. Uh, Maybe a better AA historian could place that for me. Um, But it's just a section of that letter. And it says, it's entitled Convincing Mr. Hyde. And it says, even then as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many of us AA oldsters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Very nice. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that reading in a moment. So, at Sober Speak, uh, you will find podcasts of people sharing their story of recovery, much like you do in meetings or an AA speaker meeting, usually. Uh, These men and women will tell us about their stories centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. My name is John M. I'm an alcoholic and I will be the host of this episode number 14. What is that? Catorce in Spanish? Do I have that right? Something like that. Anyway, we welcome all of your comments. Uh, please get in touch with us. Uh, you can go to soberspeak.com and check up, uh, uh, click on the feedback tab or just email us directly at feedback at soberspeak.com. So Soberspeak is a self-supporting um, organization. Their own contributions. We are not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution, we do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. And please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope of recovery with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want, leave the rest behind. That's right. Leave the rest on the curb, uh, whatever you don't like. Okay, so uh, this is a um, kind of... Uh, this is my first time to have a repeat guest on Sober Speak, and uh, I'm glad about that. Uh, we got a lot of uh, positive feedback uh, about David's uh, first time here, and uh, uh, really enjoyed uh, having him. Uh, so, David, first thing I want to talk to you about is, um, you know, I know we talked a lot. Oh, well, actually, let me back up here. The first thing I want to ask you about, actually is the reading that you brought in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you, why it means so much to you? Yeah, I think I want to start off with a little story. Um, I'm a traveling salesman, and every year for about 12 years, I traveled to Missouri. And I always was in Columbia, Missouri on the first Wednesday, Wednesday in October. It's just the way my trip plotted out. And at that Wednesday meeting at the group I went to for all of those years, that was their birthday night for September. And so being uh, a September 15th birthday, I, the first time I walked in there at two years sober, they said they, there was only one other guy and he was getting 12 years 
And I was getting two year. I had gotten two years just a couple weeks before at my own birthday night in Dallas. And they invited me to be one of their birthday celebrants, which meant that I spoke for a few minutes. And then the guy with 12 years spoke for a few minutes. And then the group shared on what we spoke about or, you know, praised us or appreciated our sobriety, whatever. And then we had cake and ice cream. And I did that for years. And I remember the first time, and I celebrated that birthday with that guy for about a decade. And, um, and I remember the first time that um, I was there, he was sharing an experience he had because he was 12 years sober now. And when he was a couple of years sober, his sponsor at the time called him at about four in the morning from jail and told him he needed him to bail him out. And so he got out of bed, kind of grouchy, and went down and took money out of the ATM and got the guy out of jail. And he's driving the guy home. And he says, you know, kind of frustrated because the guy's not telling him what's going on. You know, what? why am I bailing you out of jail at four in the morning? And the sponsor says to him, he says, well, you know, that guy at the group, he, my old lady ran off with him and they took all my stuff from my apartment and moved into a trailer together. And I found out after work yesterday and I went over there and I kicked in the door and I took all my stuff back and the police pulled me over and I got arrested for breaking and entering and and Lord knows what else. And so the sponsee, this guy that I'm celebrating with, was really like, couldn't believe what he was hearing. You know, he had just come, was two years sober and was feeling so good about all the things that this guy was showing him. And he said to the sponsor, kind of frustrated, oh, are you kidding me? You're telling me that the guy that I rely on for everything, you know, about my relationships, about my sobriety, that you went and kicked someone's door down because they took some of your stuff and went to jail. And the sponsor looked at me or looked at him and said, hey, man. You stay sober 12 years and tell me how to act. (laughs) Right. And when I heard that at first, I thought maybe he was saying that people with more sobriety somehow were better than or smarter than. And then I started to realize, and I've realized more and more through the years, that, you know, as we stay sober, that the mistakes that human beings make, not just alcoholics, but the mistakes that human beings make, um, are mistakes that we all make. Mm -hmm. And that losing our temper or... Um, acting out in some way, financially, sexually, uh, losing our temper, all of these different things that people do, that alcoholics do. And, you know, when I was first sober, you know, you look at me, David G., in 1995, and I'm paying my bills, and I've got a job, and I have two little babies, and I'm being a father to those kids, and I'm being a son to my mom, and a and a husband to my wife, and a brother to my sister, and I'm showing up when I'm supposed to show up, and I'm sponsoring people. And you know, it looked like I was pretty perfect. Because yeah. you compare that to crackhead Dave, who would steal your dope <laughs> and help you look for it, you're looking at a different human being. And it appeared that all of my problems had been solved. And really, to a big extent, all my problems that I came into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and and the other 12-step fellowships that I, I go to, those problems were solved. The consequences that brought me into the program were solved, and for the most part have been solved for many years. I no longer steal your television and trade it for crack. <laughs> I no longer drive drunk. I no longer lose my temper drunk and become violent. On and on and on. However, what surfaces then are the isms that really we talk about in AA, you know, that alcohol and drugs are really just another symptom of my sickness, my soul sickness. And that to me is what Bill was talking about. I mean, that letter, from what I understand, was written not long before he died. 
it was after years and years of sobriety. And for Bill, I think it's somewhat common knowledge that Bill struggled with depression and difficulties throughout, you know, some moral issues that he struggled with that are his to tell, not mine. And what I really have realized in the past 24 years of being sober is um, number one, and this is unflattering, that I didn't necessarily do those things that I did to you because I was drunk. Some of those things I did, I did, I got drunk so that I could do them. I wanted to tell you what I thought about you, but didn't have the courage sober to do it. I wanted to fool around with that person who I shouldn't fool around with, but couldn't get the courage up to do it unless I was sober and on and on and on. And when I got sober, a lot of those compulsions and desires that made me the person in the, that needed a drink so bad in the first place, they resurfaced. And they didn't necessarily resurface in the first year or the first two years. I was so lit up with the program. I mean, I really was overwhelmed by what happened because of the spiritual change in my life that occurred during those first few years of sobriety. And it's not to say that I didn't appreciate those anymore, but what really began to happen is it's almost like when the new car smell wears off on a new car, it gets a couple dings and you spill some coffee on the carpet and, you know, maybe whatever. Uh, that happens a little bit in sobriety, a little complacency, a little letting down of the guard. Um, and you hear about different year markers, you know, year five is hard, year six is hard. But the truth of the matter is for me, every year of being sober, and I don't mark it by years, but I can look back on my sobriety has had different challenges, spiritual challenges, emotional challenges, challenges in turning to God instead of turning to the things of the world that I think will fill that hole in me. And so that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, sure, it applies to alcohol. You know, when you pour alcohol in this guy, you put cocaine in this guy, I am a Mr. Hyde. But the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde still exists to some extent throughout my life. And my, my, my ability to see that and my willingness to do the things necessary to cope with that usually, sadly, comes at the hands of some consequences that compel me. You know, pain is the gift that nobody wants. Right. Inspiration through desperation isn't just a clever saying. It's, it's really true. And, I, you know, in so many of these things, just like my alcoholism, I'm grateful to have survived it. And, and I'll say this lastly, I'm grateful that my sobriety has survived some of my lapses in character. You and me both, my friend. Yeah. You and me both. Um, last time we uh, talked, uh, we uh, talked quite a bit about uh, your sponsor, Clovis, and the story there, and your son, Jack. And, uh, uh, but one of the things we didn't really talk about were... Uh, some of your other family members who are known, and specifically I'm thinking about uh, uh, your other kids, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so can, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your family, uh, you know, uh, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, kind of life, life in sobriety with a family and, you know, coming from where you were, having a family, raising that family, and then moving on from there. Mm-hmm. So the way I would describe me in general prior to getting sober and really working the steps and having a spiritual experience is the more that you loved me, the more that you cared about me, the more that I mattered to you, the more dependent you were on me, the more needs that you had that relied on me to fulfill them, 
the worse life was going to be for you, the more painful life was going to be for you, that there would be a bloodletting at the hands of that love. Not because I wanted that to occur, but because the way I thought and behave and acted, my extreme selfishness and self-centeredness, that I was, I, I could be so selfish that I didn't even know I was selfish. Just like you can be so alcoholic that you don't know you're alcoholic or so crazy you don't know you're crazy. And so it wasn't necessarily a, a malicious behavior on my part, although sometimes it was. Mm-hmm. It was more um, an opportunistic behavior. I had cravings, not just for drugs and alcohol, but for getting my way, having what I wanted, getting what I felt like I needed, and frankly, taking it from the people who refused to give it to me. Right. And so that's, who, that's how I came in, and I wasn't even aware that that's the person I was. I mean, certainly when I did the first real four-column inventory and started looking at my part, looking at, you know, resolutely looking where the fault was mine... Right. Uh, is the fourth step is really was my first opportunity to get that new perspective on life. I began to see where I had been such a taker that, you know, the book is very unflattering. I mean, it's not written to sound unflattering, but when it says, isn't he a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? And then it goes on to say, isn't this evident to all the rest of the people in his life? And do they not in turn want to get all they can? Because they know what I am. When I, even when I'm smiling at you, even when I'm doing a chore for you, even when I'm bringing you flowers, even when I'm acting like I care about what you think, it becomes obvious to those around me that really what I'm trying to do is manipulate and get my way and move things in the direction that I want. And um, so when I got sober and had this not just spiritual awakening where I actually made an attempt to have a relationship with God, but I also began to look at myself instead of those around me as the problem. Not to say the people around me weren't a problem, but to recognize that the only problem that I had any ability to cope with with God's help was the problems that I presented to the world. And so enter the world, my little girl Libby, Um, her real name is Houston, but we called her Libby. And, you know, when she was born, um, in March of 1994. So you were sober at this time, right? Yes. I was sober less than a year. I'd gotten sober September 15th of 93. Um, while, uh, my wife was pregnant with her and, um, and you enter her in the world and I'm standing in the hospital after, you know, it seemed like three days of labor, but it was really probably 18 hours. I was there a long time and hadn't slept. And this little baby comes out and I'm the first to see her and the recognition that the game has changed. Yeah. I'm no longer 23, 24 year old David who no one depends on. That if I dropped dead, there would be people that were sad and frankly, probably more people that would be happy, but that it really wouldn't gravely affect anyone. Yeah. You know, my mom, of course, I'm not saying that people didn't care about me. I'm saying that no one could rely on me and no one that was smart had tried to rely on me for quite a while. (laughs) And now all of a sudden there was a human being that I had participated in, in my participation in creating her that now relied on me and the weight of that. And remember at this point, I've been sober many months and have worked the 12 steps and have had a spiritual awakening and have had more than just epiphanies, but real changes. You know, I had a lot of epiphanies 
even, you know, not just tripping acid, but epiphanies <laughs> where I looked in the mirror the day after a binge and realized something has to change. I know what I am and I have to stop being it. And, you know, I came into AA like many people come into the program and, and that was with this view that just because I wanted to be different, that somehow I would be different. You know, I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose the affection of, of the people around me. Of course, no one wants that. I thought that meant something that I didn't want that. I hear people say it as newcomers now. I don't want to lose my kids. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to go to jail. Well, no one wants to, that to happen. That's not change. That's a recognition of the consequences that are happening. And hopefully for me, at least, it was a recognition that alcohol and drugs and my alcoholism was causing it. Mm -hmm. But at this point, when my daughter was born, I hadn't just had the recognition. I had had the change in character that comes from working the 12 steps. So the view I had of that child was the view of a man who had had a spiritual experience because of the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And the responsibility that I felt was breathtaking. And, and so over the years, uh, uh, in spite of many failures on my part, you know, I would probably be a better father to small children now than I was in my 20s because I'm much more mellow. I'm not a newcomer anymore. I'm not so prey to uh, temper losing and, and um, being too intense. You know, I've, I've re my personality has been refined. My reactions to life have softened. I have become way less of a know-it-all, way less of a I've got the answer. I guess what I'd say is I've become dumber the older I got. <laughs> right. And even, even though I was that kind of driven, um, really believed in my thinking um, kind of person, I always had that commitment that that little girl and then my little boy, Seth, who was born about a year and a half later, I always had the commitment that they were more important than me. Right. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, I relate to you in thinking that, uh, as soon as those kids came into my life as well, I would lay down my life for those kids in a moment, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and it definitely changes your perspective. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about a little bit was uh, we never did really, during the last episode, go into your uh, teen years, your high school, your college, and, you know, kind of a step one story almost, right, mm -hmm. you know, about the... Uh, debauchery is a is a I've heard what do you mean I didn't have any debauchery who's <laughs> this innocent crack smoking <laughs> that, that leads up to our getting here you know and uh, you know you obviously are quote qualified if you will for the program but you know why don't you talk a little bit about those that period of your life high school uh, 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 like I said teenage years uh, college and and just what what led you, uh, what the substance abuse looked like and what led you into this program. Mm. What's funny when I got into high school, I really looked down at people who even smoked. I was a I thought of myself as an athlete, a soccer player, uh, uh, a lot of things, and I thought of myself as as smart. You know, I was in all honors at Jesuit. 
And, um, and I just had a lot of views of kind of looking down on people who were unhealthy. And I think that was just a lot of almost an acting out of trying to uh, ego, trying to make myself feel better than other people. You know, it talks about that in the 12 and 12, that we really kind of put down other people to make ourselves feel better. And in uh, step six, it talks about that as a defective character. And I certainly had that. So I want to transition before I tell you about my drinking story. Mm -hmm. So my senior year at Jesuit, we took uh, theology all four years. And the theology, the first year was the Bible and Catholicism and those things. But the last year was about marriage and relationships. And so we read a we read a book and studied a book, but I think it was by Nowen. I could be wrong about that. And it had a whole section, and it talked about the masks that people wear. So this is when I'm a senior, four years after I started at Jesuit. And when I started, I had that kind of egotistical, better than view of other people. And now I'm sitting in a classroom and we're reading pages and one's like the clown. And it talks about the person who doesn't take anything seriously, that uses their sense of humor to deflect any type of serious topic and to distract from what they really feel about themselves. And, and I always felt like I was a class clown because I was really funnier than other people. I didn't look at it as me having low self-esteem and needing the attention of other people. But in that class, yeah. all I could think as they read about the class, the, the clown, was that everyone was thinking about me <laughs> and how pathetic I was. And then they read about the Ponce de Leon, which is a guy with a midlife crisis. I'm 18 years old, and they're reading the description of the Ponce de Leon, and I am super paranoid that all these guys in class with me are sitting there thinking about, that's David Greenlee. <laughs> All right. So that's a little crazy, right? So my drinking and drugging obviously changed between my freshman and senior year. And the probably the, if I had to look at it and think what the biggest effect was, is I found power in drug use. Hmm. I would even, this is a little embarrassing. Yeah. I remember one time I was at a football game and there's a girl I really liked and I thought she was a partier and I actually don't think she was. I realized later and I actually bragged, this is kind of embarrassing, but I bragged to her that I was tripping acid and I wasn't tripping acid. <laughs> I somehow thought that that would make me cool because I felt so uncool, you know? And I don't think other people saw this in me. People saw me as a very self-confident, you know, gregarious person, but I really wasn't. I was very uncomfortable in crowds of people. I didn't know how to ask girls to dance. I didn't know how to do those things. And drugs and alcohol became a tool for me. And one of the big problems with that is at that time, ecstasy was pretty much legal. Right. When I was a freshman in high school, ecstasy was legal. I could go into a bar down on Cedar Springs and I couldn't buy a beer. I mean, of course, they'd sell me a beer because the drinking age was 19 and no one cared. But I couldn't buy a beer, but I could legally put $20 across the bar and they would give me a big fat wafer of MDMA. And it was mind-blowing. And not surprisingly, me and all my friends, every weekend we were drinking orange juice and taking X. And so we really started off, me and this pretty big group of people and the Jesuit in the community, uh, taking hard psychedelic drugs before we ever really drank and smoked pot. You talk about a gateway. <laughs> And so by the time I was a senior, I was doing ecstasy, acid, cocaine, smoking pot as, as often as I could get away with it. I'm here to tell you I went to a very strict 
Catholic school that we wore coats and ties, and it was super uncomfortable being stoned at school. I did it like two or three times, and I couldn't bear it. It was just too <laughs> weird. So what, what, then what happened is I, went, I graduated and I went to college, and when I was in, at college, my view of college, the moment I got into my dorm, was how do I drink? How do I take drugs? Who do I need to get to know? Who do I cozy up to? I found a couple fraternities that wanted me to join their fraternity that would just totally dope and booze me up as hard as I wanted. And here's where the turning point came. I went to Austin College up in Sherman, Texas. The reason I went there is my first love went to J.J. Pierce and was a senior, and I needed to be within driving distance of her. That was the entire strategy of me picking colleges. And so the Christmas of my freshman year, she broke up with me. Oh, no. And it was like having fish hooks pulled to my guts. And I had a hole in me of fear and sadness and loss. And all I did the spring semester besides Pledge of Fraternity was pour as much drugs and alcohol on it as I possibly could. I probably tripped acid over that semester probably 20 times. Mm -hmm. I was smoking pot, going, I was an athlete, so I was going insane. I had injuries and getting pills and they were giving out opioids like candy um, and just taking, just trying to numb the way I felt. And the whole time partying and and going to a lot of parties and having a lot of fun. Um, and when I got home that summer was the summer that I got in trouble with my mom and ended up in N.A. for the first time. You know, there's a funny story. I've recounted it many times, but it's worth this. It should be saved in perpetuity on Sober Speak. <laughs> I was a blackout drinker. It's one of the reasons I like uh, drugs so much because I could take drugs and I wouldn't black out. And one night we were just drinking and I blacked out. And before my friends took me home, the vomiting, disgusting mess that I was, they had me go by and get some acid. And I got the acid. I didn't recall this. I was told this story later. I woke up at about four in the morning in my mom's guest room blazing on LSD. And I had no idea how I, what I'd taken, what was wrong with me. And for the next four to five hours, I just laid in that bed, staring into the smoked mirror at the head of the waterbed, <laughs> freaking out, coming unglued. And when my mom come, came to wake me up in the morning and had made me breakfast, I could not control myself. I couldn't act normal. You know, the worst thing about being a drug addict and alcoholic is being completely messed up in a place that you need to not be. <laughs> And trying with all your force of will to convince those around you that you aren't messed up while you're coming unglued at the seams inside. And that was me at the breakfast table in June of 1987. And my mom was yelling at me, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I said, mom, I don't know. I think oh, I'm tripping no. acid. And I started at 12-step fellowship that day. Yeah. Wow. And so that was kind of the progression. And I'll tell you what, if I could have gotten sober at that point, mm -hmm. I would have bypassed some of the worst experiences of my life. Right. But that's not the way it works, is right. it? It's not. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before too, though, uh, uh, coming out of a, uh, a blackout and, uh, not knowing where you were 
and having people asking you questions about how have you been? What are you doing? And trying to think, hmm, now how do I answer this question? Because I have no idea where I am right now. Well, I got to tell you, so I just had a memory. It's the last blackout I remember. And it was it was in high school. And it's one of the reasons I took drugs because this scared me so bad. I was probably a junior or senior at Jesuit. And I came out of a blackout parked with my foot on the brake at the stoplight at Forest Lane in Preston. I had no idea how I got there, nor did I know where I was until I kind of got my bearings. And another driver had stopped and was knocking on the window (laughs) to bring me out of, to wake me up, because I apparently had just straight up passed out at the stoplight. (laughs) Now, I obviously had more blackouts, but I decided at that point I needed a strategy for how not to have that happen again. My, uh, this was a few years ago now, my, my son came up to me, he was probably nine years old, possibly 10. Uh, he came up one day and he said, uh, Hey dad, have you ever heard of blackouts? And I said, well, that's kind of a strange question. Um, can you tell me what you're thinking over there? He said, yeah, I was just watching, uh, Phineas and Ferb and all the lights went out in the entire city and they started talking about blackouts and I was like, oh, blackouts, how most people think about blackouts. It's a completely different scenario. But nonetheless, um, so another topic I wanted to discuss with you is uh, uh, sponsorship because I know... I know you you have, uh, and I know we talked about Clovis last time, uh-huh. uh, but I'm more talking about your uh, your your sponsorship and how you sponsor guys in the program. Because I know that you sponsor a lot of guys and have throughout the years. You have a lot of experience with that. Uh, we've talked about this before. There's no real right or wrong way to do it, but I want to see what what uh, what you see that works. Uh, in your experience, maybe some of the the uh, um, uh, mistakes that you've made in the past, um, what your attitude is toward it now. Um, my guess is it's going to be a lot different than when you first started. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about sponsorship. Well, it has changed big time. It's changed for many reasons over the years. Um, the actions that I present to my sponsees to take, mm-hmm. the instructions, the assignments, whatever you want to call them, those have remained constant. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did with Clovis, I still have the spiral. I worked the steps with him. The, I still have my first big book that's torn to shreds. Um, in the, the, I have probably six or seven spirals that are filled up with me going through the steps over the years. And those assignments have roughly stayed the same. The reading assignments, the writing assignments. I've added and taken a few things and made some changes as time has gone by. And certainly with different people who have different issues, different points in their sobriety, we've talked a little more about you know, an issue of long-term sobriety versus just an issue of newcomer sobriety because they do change, you know. Mm-hmm. Once you're not worried about getting taken to jail for DWIs, you might have other fears. And so those things are adjustable, but really the basic process has remained the same. Um, really what's changed about me is me. Um, and I do think I'm a far better sponsor now. And I don't, I think statistically, if you were able to take statistics of my sponsees, that it would bear out that the sponsorship I've done over the past seven to eight 
10 years, whatever, has bore a lot more people with long-term sobriety mm -hmm. than my early sponsorship. And I think part of the reason is my ability now to allow people to make whatever mistakes they're going to make. Um, I wanted to, in the beginning, um, I like to think of myself as perceptive and I'm as perceptive as the next guy. Um, I, I'm as perceptive as I recognize I'm perceptive. I'll <laughs> say that. And in the beginning, when I perceived that someone was falling off in their willingness, falling off in their, uh, I would get after them. You know, oh, right. I would, whether I got after them <laughs> by calling them and saying, hey, what's going on? It's been three weeks since we did your fourth step assignment. What's happening? Um, it, it, or to go so far as when we're meeting and I saw apathy or an unwillingness to look at themselves, kind of call them on the carpet, you yeah. know? And what I've recognized through the years is calling someone on the carpet does not allow them to call themselves on the carpet. And so I speak my experience, strength, and hope about subjects, which also has changed dramatically over the years. Mm -hmm. I'll say this about this particular issue of change through the years. So I am a sponsor and I think most of the guys, probably all of the guys that I've ever sponsored, am one who I don't shame people. Um, when people tell me things they've done that they clearly have shame about, I openly share about the things that I've done mm -hmm. that have caused me to feel shame. And that what I've done and that I've been able to stay sober and what act actions that I take and how I live with myself. Um, now here's an interesting thing that's changed. For many years, I uh, participated in uh, behavior that really was inappropriate to where I was in life. Um, whether you want to call it immoral, unprincipled, whatever you want to call it, um, I participated in behavior that, frankly, I would wish I hadn't, you know, regrettable behavior. And so for, for a lot of years, I was uh, a sponsor and I had a lot of sponsees who participated in this behavior also. And I never made them feel bad about it. I always was uh, very open to them and let them know that these are things that people do and that we all make mistakes. And that's true to an extent, but there was a certain permissiveness to it that was born out of me acting in the same ways. And, um, and what's happened over the past few years, really very recently, is I've had a recognition that I'm no longer able to live with that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I no longer live with that kind of thing. And I have paid heavy consequences in the course of my sobriety for those things. And now when I am faced with sharing about that topic with a sponsee who comes to me or just a friend, it's not that I don't have, it's not that I don't, that I shame them in any way or that I make them feel bad. And I certainly share that I've had the same faults and same problems, but now I have a message of hope, a message of change, a message of uh, being a different person. And that has made my view of helping other people change dramatically because it is my job to make the newcomer feel comfortable. And it's my job uh, to some degree to make my friends feel okay that, you know, that they know and not just feel okay. It's not a, an act to them to know that I love them and respect them. It, it, not just 
in spite of their humanity, but because of their humanity. That it is the character defects of others that makes me feel a kinship to them. Not that I don't want people to be morally perfect and be wonderful and have all the money in the bank and the perfect relationship (laughs) and the 2.5 kids and the the cars in the garage, because I want people to have great lives. But it really is our common failures that kind of binds us in a way. Um, But it's also today a little different. It's just as much, if not more, the solution that I have to offer people. And I think that in the past two to three years that I have been way more helpful in a bigger picture way than I ever was capable of being as a newcomer because I had to learn some lessons. Right. Yeah, I got that. You know, um, speaking of... um, how we change over the years and how we sponsor it. You know, when you were speaking, it made me think of the uh, the first guy that ever asked me to sponsor him. Uh, I was at the Carrollton Group here in the Dallas area. And uh, this guy, uh, I went home that night and I, I had it all written out. I had it all planned out exactly how he was going to get sober and how we were going to you know, get sober together and I was going to be... You know, we were going to be skipping along. The, we were going to be trudging the road of happy destiny together. <laughs> the broad highway. And, uh, yes. Uh, and then, uh, you know what? He all of a sudden started backing off. I found at that time, you know, we, we didn't have, uh, you know, the cell phones and all that sort of stuff. And I found uh, I found his number. I found, you know, I knew where he worked. And uh, I started calling down into the place where he worked, asking him where he was. I mean, I was like a mini stalker, right? Him, right? <laughs> and uh, I was like, what's going on? I'm right. talking to myself. I'm like, please, please, you got to do it. You're not doing it right. You know, this is not <laughs> how it was taught to me, you know? So I don't do that anymore. Like right. you said, uh, I don't go chase him down. You have for years now... Um, I don't want to call it your 12-step study, but you have, uh, you help to coordinate, right, a 12-step study, generally speaking, once a year, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's been for many years now. Uh, talk to me about that experience, what it's meant to you over the years, what your memories are from it, etc. So there was a guy at my old group, uh, Roy C., and uh, he's still sober 40-something years, and um, he put up a little sign on the wall at our group every year. And it was a sign-up sheet for his step study. And uh, I started going to it my second year in sobriety. And I went to it probably over the 10, 11 years I went to the Trinity group, I probably went through his step study probably five or six times. And one of the things that I began to recognize as I went through the step study is number one, I would be at meetings with people that I had worked the 12 steps with besides my sponsees and my sponsor. Uh, In other words, I had a connection in the fellowship that I wouldn't have if it weren't for those step studies. But the other thing I began to recognize is as a member of the step study, because Roy wasn't, it wasn't his step study. He certainly set up the place and set up the time, but Roy basically came to the step study and sat there and, and shared about the work like everyone else shared about the work. What I began to recognize is, you know, the 30 people that started and the 10 people that finished, I picked up with that perceptive brain of mine (laughs) what was happening to the 20 people that didn't finish and what was happening to the 10 people that did. (laughs) And over the course of years, what I began to see is I would be in meetings and I do it today. I I was at the meeting yesterday at the Frisco group and there was a big room full of people. 
And there was 14 people besides me in that room that I had worked the steps with in the step study over the years. Mm -hmm. And then I went around the room and I counted the people who were there that had quit the step study. And there weren't very many. And that, considering that usually twice as many people quit as finish, and that there's 14 people there that I did the step study with and practically none that quit, Mm -hmm. tells me what I need to know about being willing to work the 12 steps. And I know that some people believe you work the 12 steps once, and then it's if you do the maintenance steps right, you never need to work the 12 steps again, and I don't argue that. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have different paths that we take. But when I moved out to the Frisco group and I no longer went to Roy's group, about a year into it, I realized that there were step studies going on all around, but they were, I guess, there's a private invite list because I was never invited to be in one and it was certainly never announced publicly like it had been by Roy. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to get that paperwork out, dust it off, and I'm going to just announce that we're having a step study. And it's been very well attended. You know, we just had a group end and we started with about 30 and ended with about 16. And that's 16 people that at the Frisco group. And some of them are repeat customers. You know, there's several that have been multiple times that ask me every year, hey, we doing the step study again? But there was also a lot of new people. And, uh, you know, there's a line in the the big book in uh, right before the end of the book. It says a fellowship will grow up around you. And, you know, at that time that the big book was written, the fellowship really wasn't based on the meetings because this book was being sent out all over the world to places where there weren't meetings, Mm -hmm. where people were reading the book and a salesman would come by and help them work the steps. And the fellowship that they were talking about, in my opinion, that grew up about you was the fellowship of people that you work and share the 12 steps with. Mm -hmm. Just like in that section of the book where it talks about the shipwreck, that what really binds us together is that we have a, a way out Mm-hmm. on which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. And so the fellowship that's grown up about me has really been the fellowship of people that I've gone through the 12 steps with. And in that step study, it's broadened way beyond my sponsees. It's men, it's women, it's people who would never ask me to sponsor them nor me them. And yet here we've worked the steps together. And we always have that common bond. Right. I like that. Yeah, and that's been going on for how many years now? Since 2006. Wow. Uh, yeah, 12 years. We only missed one year. Last year, uh, I didn't do it. I was having a tough time in my life, and I made the bonehead decision that when you're having a tough time, don't work the steps. <laughs> I mean, what an idiotic thing to do. But I just wasn't in a place emotionally that I felt like I could lead it. Mm-hmm. And um, But this year, we got back on the horse and rode, so hey, it was good. Yeah. 12 years, 12 steps, hey, 12 traditions. Does that mean we're done? <laughs> Probably not. No, almost. All right. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and this has kind of been a topic that I've heard in a lot of meetings lately. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and I just, I just want to hear your thoughts on it. And that is money and financial insecurity and uh, how you've dealt with that, what it meant during the first part of your sobriety, uh, what it means today, and, and, and how you kind of uh, uh, process that topic nowadays, money, financial insecurity. Man, I heard the best thing in a meeting the other day. I don't know if it was like a Confucius or a Buddha. It was one of these sayings. And a guy who I'd never seen at a meeting, but he had some years sobriety, and I haven't seen him since, shared this while he was sharing. He said, man has empty stomach, only has one problem. Man with full stomach has many problems. 
<laughs> and um, yeah. and so you know you come in desperate. You know when I came into into the program and really got sober, we were broke. Yeah. Both of my kids were Medicaid babies. You know we couldn't afford insurance. We at the end of our uh, two weeks, I got paid every two weeks. Once I paid our bills and made my small amend contributions that I could make at the time we would have 50, 60 bucks to eat with for two weeks. And it was tough. I mean, I was very poor in early sobriety. And, uh, you know, my family was my wife and uh, kids at the time. We lived on a shoestring. And, um, and I'll tell this story. So when I was about a year and a half sober, I had been in the same job, not surprisingly. In fact, I'm still in the same job. Again, not surprisingly. Although some people get laid off, I've been able... Uh, my industry isn't one where that's happened, but uh, it was Christmas time, and we I got a $2,000 Christmas bonus, and we were so excited. We had little kids now. Libby was old enough that she was going to know what Christmas was this year, and we were just lit up. And I guess I was two and a half years sober because Libby, Seth was alive, yeah. and... Um, Libby was a toddler. And so we get in my wife's Dodge Stealth that she came into the marriage with that I wouldn't let her get rid of because I wanted to drive it so bad. (laughs) And we drove up to the bank to put the money in the bank. And as we pulled up to the bank, the engine overheated. And so we took the car over to Joe, the AA mechanics. (laughs) And uh, he called me about two hours later. Mm -hmm. And he said, David... It's your head gasket. And I didn't know what that meant. I do today. (laughs) And I said, oh, man. I said, how much is that going to be? He goes, I'm guessing around $1,900. And so my wife's listening to this, and she collapses on the floor in tears. And, you know, Christmas is ruined. And all I could think when I was standing there, and I mean this, I'm not trying to be weird or like, all I could think was, Thank God I got that $2,000 Christmas bonus. Now, I'll tell you this moving forward. I am much less spiritually fit in terms of money when I have as much or more money than I feel like I need. And I think it's that feeling of need where my spirituality comes in. Um, You know, it ebbs and flows. I mean, I've had a lot of money and been a little scared and I've not had quite enough money and felt like God was going to take care of me. And of course the opposite has happened. I've had a lot of money and really been grateful for the, you know, the plentiful world we live in. And I've been living on Medicaid and having my car blow up and take my entire Christmas bonus and felt relieved that I had the money to pay for it. So I've had every of the spectrum, I've experienced everything in terms of those feelings. Um, one thing I'll say that's different today than than 20 years ago is I do not believe that all but a part of the program applies to me anymore. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. For the first 23 years I was sober because it was the way my sponsor did it, when I did my 10th step inventory at night, now some people argue that it's the 11th step inventory and I don't want to get in that argument. In the, in the big book, it's confusing which what it is. And in the 12 and 12, it spells out that you need to do a nightly debit sheet 
uh, in the 10th step. So we're going to go ahead and go with what the 12 and 12 says for today. And if I'm wrong about that, please make comments back to John Michael. I'm sure he'll <laughs> let me know. But Contact anyway. Contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com and I'll pass right. that on. I don't want to be giving out bad information. But I started about seven months ago doing a written inventory at night. And it has completely transformed the way I feel on a daily basis about so many things, including finances. And here's the funny thing about it. In the beginning, I was trying to figure out why do I feel so much better? And I was thinking, well, you know what? In the, in the inventory, it asks you to talk about, have, have you thought about yourself most of the time? Or have you thought about what you could pack into the stream of life? Have you been afraid? Have you been selfish? Have you been dishonest? Have you kept something to yourself that you should share with someone immediately? It goes through all these things. And what I thought was happening was, and it may be true to some extent, that what was happening is I was not just focusing my mind on the things that were wrong in my life, that I was taking a few minutes every night to also look at the things that I was doing for other people. And frankly, it's a little bit surprising that someone as innately selfish as me spends as much time as I spend being helpful to others. And so I thought that this inventory I was doing at night was making me feel better about myself because I was seeing the good that I contributed to the world. That really, frankly, without the inventory, I didn't spend very much time thinking about. But now, today, I'm beginning to think that the reason I feel so much better is because I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. That it's really just that simple. That spirituality, that my relationship with God is not necessarily about the mechanics of the steps, the mechanics of looking at myself, the mechanics of seeing that I'm the problem and I need God to help me. Those are necessary, but I think that the spirit of the steps is my willingness to do what my higher power would have me do. And that God does reward even the most mustard seed level of effort. That's right. David, this has been great. Um, I've enjoyed our time together. Uh, you are chock full of information. Chock full of nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> chock full of good information. And uh, um, I, I really, uh, I, I just enjoy, I mean, I just sit here listening to you thinking, oh yeah, I've got to apply that. I've got to apply that. Uh, you do a great job. And uh, hey, while we're uh, just on the podcast here, I just want to go ahead and give a real quick shout out to uh, my wife, Shannon, uh, and the reason I want to uh, give that shout out is to say thank you so much. She is the one who puts the website together. She does all these postings. Um, she does just like ton of work. Uh, you wouldn't realize what kind of work goes into this to put this thing together technically. And I want to say thank you, Shannon. I love you. And um, um, that's going to wrap it up. Once again, if you want to go to our website, which Shannon created... Uh, Thank you, Shannon. Yes, from the ground up. It is soberspeak.com. And uh, 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 God bless you. Oh, and I'm going to go ahead and read here from the uh, page 164 of the big book to close this out. And that is, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. For now, we're signing out on Silver Speak. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.